0: Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 123. The date of recording was Monday, August 12th, and it was recorded in Hill's Kitchen in Manhattan. Now, I really don't have a whole lot of content or any episodes on South America or Central America, and that's because I haven't been there. So you'll probably notice that a lot of the places or a lot of the episodes that I do with people here in New York or the ones that I do remotely, they're places that I've been before and that I can talk about intelligently. My guest for this episode today is Abel Castro and he's going to talk about Ecuador, which obviously if you know your geography is in South America. Abel is the owner of a restaurant in Manhattan called Nano or Nanyo. Probably say that like a like a real gringo. But I was really excited to have him on because like I said, I, I certainly have no Ecuadorian content and I really don't have a lot of content from South America. I was going back through the episodes and I remembered that Leslie was on and I found that that was episode 41. She talked about Colombia and Bolivia. But again, first time I've had someone to talk about Ecuador, which is really, really exciting. Obviously, being in New York, I'm exposed to a lot of different cultures. I've got Everything here at my fingertips, which is one of the reasons why I love New York, especially when we're talking about food, right? You know, food from anywhere in the world is just a subway right away, and it's pretty much as close to the source as it can be without you actually being there. So I felt really privileged to have Abel on this episode to talk about Ecuador so that I could learn from him, provide you guys with some stories and some interesting content. And then also I was able to eat some amazing, amazing food. I had seco de pollo, Uh, how do you describe this? Well, uh, yellow rice and I guess like stewed chicken. Oh man, really, really amazing. Uh, I'll be sure to go back if you are in Manhattan, check it out. It's a small place, they've got cool cocktails and Ecuadorian beer and all sorts of delicious Ecuadorian food. Abel himself is an artist and a businessman and just a really interesting guy who told me a whole lot about Ecuador. And now, as with all the guests that I have on here, I am happy to call him my friend. So please go to the show notes for this episode and you will find a link to the restaurant where you can check out the menu and pictures and a little about me about the restaurant and all that good stuff. Awesome. Also check out the show notes for this episode and you will find a link to my Patreon that is a subscription-based service where you can give monthly if you are able to support the podcast financially. If not, please, word of mouth. I've noticed lately that I've had a steady stream of downloads every day uh, from places all over the world, so that's really cool. Thank you folks for spreading the word. Also, five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes or whichever podcast application you listen to, those help a whole lot as well. All right, enjoy this conversation with Abel Castro. First of all, Abel, thank you. This is a real pleasure to get to sit here and uh, check out your restaurant and to learn from you. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you for coming.
0: All right. So first of all, about you. I saw that you worked in finance. I think you worked in film. What was your career and your career aspirations before the restaurant here?
1: Um, as an any starving artist, I had to... Mm compensate for my income so I had to work in corporate America for all that time that I was doing my artwork so yes I did go to film school um I graduated from school of visual arts in uh, oh during yeah. in film um I worked on my own projects as well as others um I think my uh, biggest accomplishment in uh, filmmaking was when I worked in um a Hong Kong-based film company as an art director assistant. Whoa. Yeah. And that was really exciting. Um, worked uh, with one of the best there uh, as a set decorator, prop master. Wow. Uh, and that was really exciting. Um, but then I decided to do my own work, which is because I, was, um, I always had a creative uh, mind. And I wanted to do my own work. So I started doing documentaries, small documentaries, and then a feature-length documentary. Then I moved on to short films. But then I just uh, literally got turned off by the... um, By that... uh, The business aspect of it. Yeah. And and so I decided to... Decided on plan B. Um, And... uh, while I was uh, working in corporate America, I was traveling a lot, I was, um, I was lucky enough to be, uh, save a little bit of money to travel, and I was spending all my money there, which uh, it's not bad, but I figured, let me do something more, um, uh, anything uh, uh, invested so that I can have a, you know, a steady income. Yeah. and uh, it took me a while to figure that out uh, first I wanted to buy a house um, I did some research about that but then the bank said that I couldn't I wasn't going to be able to afford it after, after, after all <clears throat> so I decided to um, go into the food business only because while well, I was having friends over at my house they liked my cooking and uh-huh. so I figured that's uh, my probably a more feasible uh, plan So I did more research into that, uh, probably three or four years um, to figure out what I wanted to do. I sat down at similar restaurants, Ecuadorian restaurants, uh, what they were doing, how much income they were bringing in, um, uh, just based on sitting down and ordering and uh, figuring how much they were selling. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought to myself, I can do this, hopefully. and um, I took some seminars that at that time um, uh, Mayor Bloomberg offered. I don't know if they still do. Uh, they have a thing called NBAT, um, and it's for new businesses Yeah. Like me. Uh, and they help you out with all aspects of business, with, of the food business specifically. Um, they help you out in the streamlining process of uh Department of Building Permits, Fire Department, uh, and the actual Health Department. So I took advantage of that, and I took seminars, and um, they assigned me to one person, my go-to. And though I think that was gold. I mean, they opened doors. They instructed me. It it was. I think it was the best thing I ever did and I I, and I was lucky because that's it was a time when they were offering this initiative
0: you were originally born in New York I
1: was born in Ecuador born and raised oh okay Uh, so I was born and raised in Ecuador I came here to the to New York in 1988 Um, uh, my mom and I moved in Brooklyn Sunset Park specifically yeah
0: okay I used to live in Bay Ridge for a long time
1: yeah yeah I went to Fort Hamilton
0: Ah, okay
1: so I was a few blocks from there yeah Yeah. Um, wow Port Hamilton was my high school. I, I graduated in 1990. Um, I still see my high school friends from then. They actually come here to the restaurant, so it's uh, I have nice memories from.
0: Yeah. So Brooklyn. when you when you say you know you're uh, working in corporate, you're working in film, and your friends love your cooking, like where does your cooking come from? Who taught you that?
1: Well, so I, I lived in, with my mom all that time, and. Um, until about, I was 29 and I, f- I thought I, was, I didn't want to be a uh, person who was um, living with their parents and everything was being done for me and I wanted to grow up and be an adult so I moved, to, I moved out and when I moved out I had to cook for myself and just in order to save money and that's how I got to learn how to cook. Uh, and also, of course, my, you know, the, my mom's inspiration because I always saw her cooking and my grandmother, of course, that's part of any Ecuadorian family uh, where you're always at the kitchen, seeing what they're doing and helping out in the process. So that's just typical. of Yes. Ecuadorian.
0: yes. I saw that maybe in like some social media post. you referenced your mom, you referenced your grandmother. Um, where in Ecuador is your family from?
1: Uh, we are all from, well, we were born in Guayaquil, but okay. we have, like most Ecuadorians, we we have family coming from the Andes uh, as well. Uh, so I, I have part, I'm part from the coast and part from the Andes.
0: Okay, so I'll be honest and say I know very little about Ecuadorian cuisine, but I know a bit of geography and I know a bit of history, Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about coasts, you're talking about mountains, you're talking about indigenous people, you're talking about Spanish influences, how regional is Ecuadorian cuisine? So if you're in Quito or you're in Guayaquil, like how different is are your food choices or are they similar?
1: Well, if you're talking about Ecuadorian cuisine, uh, you're going to find a very uh, diverse uh, cuisine because not not all ingredients are readily available ever, uh, to all. Uh, for instance, not all grains and potatoes are going to be, or root vegetables, are going to be available on the coast and vice versa. Um, and so, for instance, on, on the Andes, you're going to find a lot of soups, a lot of grains, a lot of root vegetables, pork. Uh, while on the coast, you're going to have all kinds of seafood and plantain and yucca. Um, but in the in the Amazon, you're gonna have freshwater fish, um, more ceviche, fish, ceviche, yes, of course, um, and uh, some insects and bugs in yeah. the Amazon too. Um, So there's a lot of uh, different kinds of things going on in Ecuador that for me as a restaurant uh, it's that is the reason why I don't know if you noticed by our menu is seasonal. It's we have a summer menu. We we, every every season we come out with with something new um, because there's so much to offer that it's impossible to keep it in all in one menu.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I had seen on the internet uh, or on your website that you have a really popular like super stew. Yes, and everyone's like, "Yeah, I get this in the winter." I'm like, "Damn, it's so hot out today, but I really want to try that." Um, it, this is maybe again, this is out of ignorance. Is there a difference between like Ecuadorian ceviche and like Peruvian or Venezuelan?
1: So c- ceviche is uh, something that is cooked uh, all over the world, um, but. Peruvian ends in, and when I say talk, when I say all over the world, it's done in Asia um, in, a, in a different version, but in South American per se, Ecuadorian and Peruvian ceviche uh, are almost the same. Uh, if you're on the coast of Ecuador, you're gonna have fresh f- uh, fish coming out of the water and then being cooked right there and then, so you're gonna cure it um, with lime um, and it'll be just like. Not just like the uh, Peruvian ceviche, but in the sense that it's is, it is being cooked by lime. Yeah. But if you're living in in the main in the inland or like or in the in Guayaquil where I'm from, where it's really, really hot, um, fish can you know can only last you a fresh so long. So it is cooked uh, and it is cooked differently. Uh, the, the lime and the cilantro is a very uh, essential ingredient or are essential ingredients in the dish. Uh, so <clears throat> so there are some uh, varieties of ceviche in Ecuador uh, in the way that it's prepared, yes.
0: I've taught a lot of kids from Sunset Park, right? So mm-hmm. there's a large population of people from Central America, South America, Mexico. Um, for Ecuadorians, and people who like Ecuadorian food, how important is it to you to like get it right, to make it like as close to what they would have at home, uh, but here in New York?
1: Um, so I, it's so, dif- it's so funny because I didn't notice this until I actually opened the restaurant. So most Ecuadorians who would come to the restaurant walk in and they, uh, right away they would have a um, they want to make sure that they're getting the the food as authentic as possible. So like grandma, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I, it it is very true. Uh, Ecuadorians are very picky. We are very um, we demand th- our food to be true. Uh-huh. Um, our food at Ñaño is uh, as of, as authentic as we can make it. The reason why, um, and we do make. A lot of it is very authentic, but there are, I, 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 let me rephrase that. Everything is authentic, but it has been edited to uh, a non-Ecuadorian clientele. And when I say that, is because a lot of people, a lot of our customers would say, can I have only white meat chicken or uh. Uh, fish off the bone or chicken off the bone? Uh, there was a time when we ha- we still have caldo de bola it's, a, it's a, an amazing beef soup with plantain and peanut sauce and so that soup re- with the way we serve it is with corn on the cob and we used to serve it that way with corn on the cob and we would find the corn on the cob on the, um, uh, intact on the plate after they were done wow. because they couldn't pick it up and <laughs> eat it off with their hands so we had to opt out of the cob and just have the grains on the soup, things like that. Um, And that's what I said we had to edit, but the recipe itself is just the same. The same thing with our chicken stew, it has to be off the bone because people don't want to pick off the bones.
0: I see. Now when I was researching a bit, I saw that there is a fruit that is I believe native to like Colombia and Ecuador that is prominent in food and in beverage. The kind of like an orange, naranjillo.
1: Correct. I actually read a, um, that it's also available in New Zealand. Really? Yes.
0: Ah, same climate, I guess. Yes. I,
1: I, well, I have a theory about that. Tell um, me. So, so yes, the naranjilla or lulo, they call it in Colombia. It's um, a native fruit from around Quito. If you look at look it up, the Latin is Quitoense Sol- Solanusum or something, I'm, if I'm incorrect, I'm sure somebody will correct me, um, which means that it's from the area of Quito. But if uh, you read some of the Inca history, uh, there was a Inca king that was able to travel to that area in New Zealand and part of Fiji and, And so it may be possible that that fruit made it its way over there via an Inca king. Wow, Um, that's really cool. But that's only my theory. It's only because I read or saw this on a documentary recently. So, so yeah, it's a fruit called naranjilla and it's a sour fruit. Uh, It looks like passion fruit when you cut it open. Uh, It's green and it turns orange when it's mature, when it's ripe. and it's delicious. We eat it in ice cream, juices, and um, we make this, our number one seller here at Ñaño is called seco de pollo. We cook with that fruit um, and desserts as well. Um, so is it easy to like import the amounts of that fruit that you need? Fortunately, it's not a, a, a high demand. So the only way ah. that we get it is frozen pulp or frozen fruit.
0: Oh, OK. I guess that makes sense. All right, so then also, I'm sitting here drinking a Biela? Yes. And you're saying there's a better representation of Ecuadorian cerveza. What would that be?
1: So there is... So first of all, Biela is slang for beer in Ecuador. So that's Ah, why this beer's brand is called Biela. Um, But there is a... i not. I won't. I won't say better quality because I don't want to get in trouble.
0: Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but
1: there is another more uh, a more popular beer uh, called Pilsner, and a, it is a Pilsner. Um, it has definitely more f- flavors. There's more body to it, and uh, there's also another one called um, uh, I forget the name now. Club, <laughs> um, So those are very popular beers in Ecuador.
0: And there's a. Liquor made from sugarcane, which is very strong, I believe. Aguardiente?
1: Aguardiente has its roots from Portugal. Um, ah. Aguardiente, and it's primarily made with fruits like peaches and um, um, other, I, I believe, um, plums. And when, uh, when the Europeans came to the uh, Americas, uh, Latin America decided to make it with sugarcane instead. So a lot of people make it like in Mexico, Puerto Rico makes it, but Colombians made it more famous. Um, and so if you're going to have aguardiente in the US, most likely you're going to have a Colombian uh, brand. Uh, the Colombian aguardiente usually has anise in, in, in the mix but Ecuadorians usually just, it's pure sugar cane. There's no licorice, there isn't that licorice tone. It's more grassy, more vegetable. It doesn't, it's not as uh, any higher than vodka or tequila. It's the same alcohol content, Um, but it's just the name, I guess, makes people nervous. Uh, Aguardiente means fire water, so right away they feel like it's more potent, but it's not. You can get it here, huh? You can, yes. Okay. And we make um, a typical drink called um, canelazo, and it's a hot toddy. Um, And we also make signature drinks that, you know, they range from sour to sweet and dry cocktails, and they were made up here in the the restaurant.
0: Very cool. You you touched on something that I wanted to talk about. So there's two things that I really get out of this podcast. I get to meet people doing really cool and amazing things, right? So I can sit down here with you, know you, and now in the future when I come here, I know Abel. The other thing is, I get to learn, right? So again, like, um, I know a little bit about Ecuador, but had to research a lot, and then I get to learn a lot from you. You just mentioned Portugal, and I think, like most, you know, kids who go to school know that there was Spanish imperialism and colonization in the Americas. Then obviously Portugal and Brazil, but Ecuador went through like a lot of cultural diffusion and cultural influences from places all around the world. And in learning about your restaurant, I didn't realize that there was, for some dishes, a Chinese influence. Can you talk about that?
1: That is correct. Um, so there, there has been a big migration from China. Um, since I was a little kid, I, I went to school. With, my classmates were named Chan, Chang, or Chung. Uh, there were Chinese Ecuadorians, uh, Chinese parents, um, and a lot of them uh, opened Chinese restaurants called Chifas in Ecuador. And from there, we liked a few dishes and then made them, made our versions of them, like Lomo Saltado, which is something the Peruvians also make, or uh, Chao La Fan, which is... Chao La is basically Chinese fried rice. Ah. Oh. Like Chao La Fan. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, so we make Chao La Fan. Um, or Tallarín Saltado. Those are definitely Chinese dishes that made it to our Ecuadorian cuisine. Wow. Um, we also have Lebanese influence. We had, I uh, believe, three Lebanese... Inf- uh, uh, like donor. Uh, uh, presidents. Oh. Um, and so, like, my mom would make arroz con pollo with walnuts and raisins, which I pro- that's probably a little Arabic. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so so there is that. Um, wow. Japanese as well. African. Af- uh, well, African as well, of course. Uh, that's in the province of Esmeralda. So they cook with uh, a lot of coconut and plantain and things like that. A lot of seafood.
0: That's amazing. Like th- That's something I learned from watching um, Anthony Bourdain's show. Because I, oh, yeah. I think it was him who went to... He did. It was he him did. or Eddie Huang went to like Mexico City, and there was a huge Lebanese influence there. And I was like, wow, I never would have imagined that. Right. But all the way down in Ecuador as well. So then, okay, on that same token, um, like we mentioned, like predating the Spanish, predating the Inca, there are very old cultural roots and from the people who were there right and i think maybe if people have a little bit of knowledge about ecuador they know like quechua uh do you know at all if like some of the dishes trace all the way back to that time
1: going back to seco de pollo it's definitely uh, a very indigenous dish because Originally, seco de pollo was done or cooked with something called chicha, which is a corn fermented drink that only indigenous people make. Wow! And so because chicha is not something that you can go to the supermarkets and buy easily in and, and, and most towns and big cities, it is. Um, it was adapted. People started making it with beer because it is a, it's a fermented drink as well. And so it was the closest thing possible they could um, make this dish with, and then lately with naranjilla. So I'm, su- I'm sure that people who would say um, this is not true Ecuadorian today, they don't know that the dish that they're having today is probably a uh, derives from something else that was done by indigenous people before, Yeah. like the seco de pollo. I mean, I'm sure they're not a uh, person of this contemporary age would make saiko de pollo with chicha. That's definitely from a, an indigenous uh, root. So um, and so many other dishes um, like caldo de bola. It's 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 made with plantain. Oh, you know which one? Tonga, for instance, that's tonga. The one that we're going to bring uh, to our full menu. It's um, so Tonga is basically a very um, uh, uh uh, from not not from urban cities, it's definitely from rural places because food was wrapped in banana uh, leaves to be uh, taken from to their workers because you know plates are now it's something from the modern world. So their food was being wrapped in banana leaves and carried to their workers.
0: Ah, um, similar in Southeast Asia, actually. There
1: you go. Yeah. So. Um, yeah so yeah a lot of our food has def- it's, it's it's uh of course uh from very ancient times um i don't know how far back but definitely now from uh uh it's definitely pretty uh colombian
0: yeah it's really really cool i mean one of the unfortunate things you see with like i don't know if it's a globalization or if it's like years and years and years of imperialism is that often in today's modern age, people who are indigenous um, are really unfortunately treated as like lesser. But at the same time, you sort of see this revival of people wanting to appreciate roots. I think sort of like the celebrity chef has maybe brought that out and like the popularization of food and things like that in media. Um, so hopefully then we start to see a greater appreciation, appreciation for dishes like that for the people who created them.
1: Absolutely. And listen, before I had the restaurant, I had no interest uh, whatsoever about the history of our food or um, not so much, even, I, I'm, and it's sad to say even for my own country, but with the opening of my restaurant, I, you know, this light of me that wants to learn more about where I come from and about the history of Ecuador, our food, our geography and our people. Um, and uh, because before that, I, all I wanted to become was an American. I wanted to absorb what is to become to uh, be an American person. Because I was a teenager when I came, and you know, you have so, you know that pressure to be part of um, the group. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so that's all I to wanted. to become. So yeah. at that time, I had turned back on my own roots. But now as an adult, I take pride. Actually, it's it's like a whole three. It's a, yeah, a, I love that. A flip. Um, and so now it's I'm more and more passionate about my 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 homeland. <laughs> I love
0: that. so whenever i I've had a lot of people from food on here, and whenever we talk about food, I always the two things I ask are like, who taught you? and I asked you that. Mm-hmm. But then when you think back, because, Um, It's a long thought, but a lot of our memories are tied to food. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when we meet new people or when we're in social settings, usually the context or the focal point of that gathering is food. When you think back to... Thanks so much. When you think back to grandma and mom and childhood and Ecuador, what meals do you remember, like, fondly that you have memories tied to? Okay.
1: Um, So I was the last one of my... I'm the, the last child in my, of my, in my parents, uh, and so, and not only the last one, but the um, also there's a big gap between me and my older sibling, five years uh, gap. So I was uh, generally left alone, and um, because because they were grown, grow more. Um, older than I am yeah so um, and so I I was left with my mom usually cooking a meal uh, lunch or dinner so I was always close to the kitchen always always Um, thank you thank you so So I
0: put her with me I'm gonna take care of of it thank you
1: uh, so um, to my, and my, my, my dad would come on Friday nights always with something for us to eat, like something that my, that was not prepared at home. So okay. he would bring either parrillada, which is basically grilled steak and Ooh. grilled chicken or grilled chorizo uh, carne en palito something that we have on our menu as well uh, or even burgers um, but there was always that looking forward to his arrival on Friday nights because he would bring us something and we would, you know, eat together as a family Um, and, in in those days growing up also, um, my dad, I mean, there was not this one, um, whole day that you worked. You also, you, in those days you went to work and then you came home at noon to have lunch. And then my dad will go back to work and then come home late at night. So it was, and every family did that in those days, there was always that siesta for everyone. he would pick us up at 12 noon uh, from school, bring us home, have lunch as a family, and and he would take a siesta and then go back to work. Ah. That's everyone in those days. Um, and so um, there's there's definitely that uh, fond memory of uh, my, my family, my dad eating together, spending time together, and of course food always. Uh, at its core.
0: Yeah, I love that. You know, when I first started traveling, like I had this idea in my I was younger than I am now obviously, but I had this idea in my head like I need to do like things that seem extreme to me, right? And I think about the the television show Bizarre Foods, which now like I'm quite m- embarrassed by that name because something that's bizarre to one person is, is normal to another person, right? So, like the first real traveling I did, I went to Vietnam. Um, and I had, like, the beating snake heart, which, like, people aren't sitting around (laughs) having beating snake hearts, right? Right. But it's something that, like, tourists are doing. Um, But the more I started to travel, I realized that some of these things that Americans or or Western folk, right, in, in air quotes, would think of as bizarre are quite normal because it's the thing that's available. So last year when I was in Indonesia, I had bat, right, and Probably to a lot of people, are like oh wow, but it's like yeah. If you're if you're out in a rural setting and protein is scarce, and there's a bat, and you can stew it and you can make it tender and actually taste good, then why not? Mm. Uh, one thing I think that maybe people will look at Ecuador and think like whoa, um, and see on something like bizarre foods is like guinea pig, right? Right. But how how normal and prevalent is that for maybe people who are that, you know, outside that, of the city? That's
1: another indigenous kind of uh, protein also. That is not yeah. something that is in in, in most uh, urban areas. Um, that is definitely a indigenous uh, meal. If you go to uh, an indigenous house, you will see guinea pigs running around the house in their little space. And uh, and and they provide uh, heat to that house because there are so many running around. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, guinea pig is actually something definitely from the Andes. And, you know, and that dish is, if you, and 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 it's not only Ecuador who eats it, it's people from Colombia all the way to Bolivia. So, it's not really an Ecuadorian per se thing. I think that we have made it more famous only because and maybe that, but because of our migration to the, to Europe, and that's it, it. It was probably made popular there, like it was seen as bizarre there. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely something that is eaten all throughout the Andes. But it's definitely an indigen- indigenous uh, meal. It is eaten, of course, in Quito and Guayaquil in in urban areas as a delicacy because it's not something that is like I didn't eat. It was not part of our everyday meals. Right. And we're from Guayaquil. We're from the coast. But my cook, for instance, she's from Cuenca. She's from the south and the Andes. She actually grew up eating Cuy all the time. It's something it was part of her meals every I'm sure every week. Wow, this is rich. She loves it. And she's given me to eat. Um, it's I've had it. It's it's good. But it's still in my even for us in Ecuador, I'm not there yet to have a full. I see. Kui for myself.
0: Ah, this is really fascinating. Thank you for, for being so honest. That's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm noticing a lot of family theme, right? I noticed you talked about your mom, your grandmother. I saw online you talked about uh, there's a meal influenced by your sister. Yes. Am I correct in thinking the name of the restaurant? It, could you pronounce it correctly for so me?
1: So the name is called Nanyo. And like G N A G N O. And it's Ñano, like lasagna. Nanyo. Quechua. It is Quechua. Quechua is the uh, language of the Incas. And so, as you know, the In- Inca Empire went all the way to Colombia and down to yeah. uh, of Argentina. And so, the Inca language is still being spoken um, by a lot of the Ecuadorian people, um, especially the indigenous uh, community. And some of the words are being still spoken. Some words they made it through our popular slang. And so, instead of we, in Ecuador, we say ñaño instead Nano. of call, saying hermano. The, hermano, yes, that of means course. Our, that means brother. Yes. We do say hermano, but commonly we say ñaño or ñaña to our brothers and sisters. And we call our friends our best buddy or even a stranger. You want to get him close to you, hey ñaño. So why? Just like brother, the word brother in English is used.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Or like brother. brother. Yeah. There you go.
0: So, why the name of the restaurant then?
1: Because, um I wanted a small word because it's easier to remember and uh, something that would uh, I, that we identify ourselves with. And if you ask any Ecuadorian, people who walk by this restaurant and never been here, they see that name and be like, oh, that must be an Ecuadorian restaurant. Ah, oh, so cool. It's, so it, it's not Ecuadorian per se because it's Quechua and that's being spoken by a lot of countries in South America. But we have made it our own as in because it's a popular thing.
0: All right. So in a little while here, I'm going to sit down with Leslie over there and I'm going to order something. Yes. Right. Now, obviously, you would plug everything on your menu, everything's good. But if you think I need an authentic taste of Ecuador, again, I'm a little clueless, what should I order?
1: Um, number one, seco de pollo, seco de is, pollo. and uh, it, it's something that would you would never have had. The flavor is so distinct, so atypical that um, you will say, I've never had this flavor before. So that's one, um, and then caldo de bola is another. Um, if you've ever had sancocho before, which is done by many Latin American countries, sancocho is a soup. Okay. Uh, so it's made of beef, and but what sets it apart from sancocho is that we grate green plantain to thicken the soup, Ooh. and then we uh, and then we add peanut sauce, uh, and then there's a dumpling made out of green plantain, and uh. in that dumpling there's beef, egg, raisins, and more. Oh, that sounds amazing so it's very hearty um, do not dare having that soup and then seco de pollo yeah. because <laughs> you will not be able to make it you can take it home I'm sure but um, so one or the other maybe Leslie can have one and uh, so those two I think I mean there are other stuff out, you know but I want you to have flavors that you will say hmm I've never had this flavor before anywhere else so awesome those two Cool, cool.
0: I'm gonna ask a couple of questions that are sort of political, so if you're uncomfortable with it, don't feel bad telling me, eh, we shouldn't talk about that. But, now you're a business owner in New York City, right? Um, one of the most popular and talked about Ecuadorian restaurants in the five boroughs, right? Again, I said, like, if you look at media, like, food culture is really in right now, it's really cool. Um, so as a business owner, like you can choose to get involved in a number of initiatives or topics, or or movements even. Right um, now, it's the anniversary of Stonewall. Uh, New York City is a place that's very LGBTQ-friendly. I looked online and I saw that. The, and back here, you have the shirts in the in the rainbow flag, and you have rainbows out front, um, like why and how important is it to you as, a, as the owner of this restaurant to support um, the lgbtq community
1: okay mm, so there are a couple of components to uh, to that question i guess i should answer uh, by first saying that i live in this neighborhood in hell's kitchen um, when i first uh, was looking into opening a restaurant i was looking in different neighborhoods uh, harlem brooklyn queens uh, lower east side but then somebody uh, suggested that I should open a restaurant, my business, in a neighborhood that I know well. So the answer was very easy. I needed to open in my own neighborhood, Hell's Kitchen. I've been living here since 1990. So I know it very well. Uh, I lived through the transition through uh, from being this uh, horrible place to live to this... Uh, not even up and coming anymore. It is the place to be for food and for the LGBT community, LGBT plus community. Uh, I am also gay. um, So I'm representing who I am out there, I guess. And uh, and because I live in this LGBT plus uh, neighborhood, it it just makes sense. So so I guess that answers your question, or?
0: Yeah, absolutely, I mean, I come from, again, like I come from education, so I just I just rushed down here, that's why I was so sweaty, I okay. came here from, from Harlem, right? And yeah, and so, um, as someone who is going to be educating people from all across like the racial spectrum, the orientation spectrum, the cultural spectrum, it's important to me as an educator that like they feel comfortable and safe in the place that, uh, I'm responsible for. And so, yeah, I, I've had a number of folks on here again who are in food and it's not something I'd ever thought about before in terms of food as like a space that you can go and not have to worry. Right. And feel like welcome and at home and like, um, I can sit down and and eat food with people and not even think twice about it.
1: I mean, I, I want to say maybe last year, I, it took me by surprise. Um, I as a business owner, you, you know, social media is very relevant. It's important for the thrive, for making your business thrive um, in the sense that you got to market yourself out there. And uh, I was just reviewing my profile on the Google Maps, and that's something that I manage. Um, but there are things that people suggest to Google so that they can add it to your profile. And that's something that I never did. But for mm. last year, I was reviewing it, and then somebody put down that I was even transgender safe or friendly. Mm. And that's not something that I had added. So, and I do have because there is not only the gay lesbian community here, but like there is a transgender big it, since the nineties. This has been a transgender neighborhood. Of course, neighborhood. Yeah. Um, So. Uh, I've had customers uh, in the transgender community, and they they felt that it was a safe place, and they suggested that to Google. And so uh, that goes to say, uh, you know, the flags are not just for show; it is for uh, it's a welcoming community. And uh, and of course, it's not a gay restaurant per se; it's just, it's it's an Ecuadorian restaurant. Yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, all right. This next one, too. Again, th- these are sort of political. So if you're not comfortable, we definitely don't have of to. Course. But so I, when I'm 33, right, when I was my first like job job where I got a paycheck. So I had been a babysitter and things like that. was in a restaurant. So I was a, a waiter. And on Sundays, I was like a food runner during brunch. It was real busy. So I was just taking food from the kitchen, bringing it up. And I remember the guys I worked with were all from Mexico. And I think any New York restaurateur someone that has worked in a restaurant knows that kitchens and waitstaff are full of people from central america south america from mexico latin american immigrants to this country also like i said in my my work i worked with i worked with some kids whose parents were illegal immigrants and in the, were illegal immigrants oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and in the recent ice crackdowns like i had to write a letter to the courts to say hey like these kids' parents work really hard, these kids are contributing, these kids are about to go to college, like, you're going to tear their lives apart. Um, We know what's going on here in this country. Like, do you and your workers, like, feel that at all? Do you worry about that? Do you feel like you need to protect people, or is it something that doesn't come up at all?
1: Um, I mean, it's a very complex uh, problem. Um, there are different points of view and and uh, you know, they're all are uh, they're all fair. Um, but from a human point of view, uh, humanistic point of view, I guess it's uh, it's it's sad, it's very stressful for a person who's und- undocumented to work in the US uh, when nowadays you are, scared that you're going to be taking away your freedom until you're brought to your country of origin. Um, and that is very bad. It's so it's not human. Uh, and so whatever the reason if, if legal or not legal uh, in law uh you do have to do whatever you have a country has to do what they have to do but in the ways that are being that are being processed um, it has the the fact remains that it has to be done uh, in a human way yeah um, so yes uh, people here and everywhere and uh, in the US and, and uh, like you said it is blatant that a lot of these Workers are not legally here in the U.S. working, um, but they're working. Of course. And uh, let me tell you, when I first started work, when I first opened the restaurant, I was not just the the owner. I mean, I was the cook. I worked in the kitchen. I come from a very, my work before is nothing compared to what working in the kitchen is like. Work in the kitchen is very tough. Um, it's stressful. It's physically uh, hard. Mentally, it's, it's very tough work. Uh, it may not seem that way. It, of course, it has been glorified by these um, cooking shows. Um, but if, you're, if you look at a kitchen in a, um, most of these mom and pop's restaurants like mine, one person has to do the jobs for three of three Um, and so because it's not compartmentalized like all these big restaurants where a budget is a lot bigger than mine Um, and so I used to sometimes cook and sometimes do deliveries. I still do. What am I doing? I didn't do. (laughs) I mean, I still sometimes do. I wear many hats. But in the kitchen, I sometimes had to wash dishes, cook, prepare, and sometimes do deliveries. I mean, it's um, and so, you know, they work hard. imagine if this was a union job right it would not the prices would not be the same let right. me tell you that. let me tell you that it would uh, uh the cost of food would not be the same uh you would not be having lunch specials for six ten dollars anywhere um there wouldn't be any lunch specials yeah uh, prices would have to go up because uh if they would if we would pay what they deserve to be paid we couldn't hold the prices that we do today. Um, And um, fortunately, that's the system that we live in all over the world, Um, be a capitalist or I I don't know if a socialist country would do the same. I'm not sure because I don't know, but um, it's um, so, yeah, I mean, don't take away the fact that they work. They have worked so hard um, and uh, and if they're being taken back to their country of origin, at least give them the decency to have a very human way of going back.
0: Yeah. Know. Thanks for answering that. I know that was a tougher
1: one. It is. It is a very tough because, um, you know, I I'm here from another country. I'm here uh, in the U.S., but I'm not from here per se. I'm an American now. Right. But uh, physically, for. You know, not uh, I don't look American per se, right. so anyone can come up to me, ask for papers to make sure that I'm not an illegal immigrant, and you know, there's no uh, shame in that. But why even go through all this? Yeah. So,
0: all right, I'm very excited to eat and to <laughs> join Leslie before she has the class. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna ask you <laughs> one more question. Yes. Um, so we talked about mom grandma sister the place is called brother now that you've had this restaurant and it's got a great name for it has your family eaten here and what do they think of your success
1: so um in the beginning my mom and i believe my brother was all against it they said are you crazy do not (laughs) do this Uh, when they even saw the space it used to be a pizzeria um, ah. and it was decrepit and they said, Are you, this space has no potential. But I did see the potential. So um, and so in the beginning, yes, they were against it and, um, and they worried a lot. But now they see, I don't know, I'm not successful f- economic and f- financially because, you know, as you can see, since you've been here, there's only been two tables. Mm. So um, but successful in the sense that people leave happy. And I think that's what brings uh, pride and joy in, in what you do more than the green, the dollars. So I love that. And yeah. so, um, my mom goes to church, and on her way back, she picks up her food from here <laughs> and takes it home. So she wouldn't eat from here. She didn't like. It. And of course, my family has me here on family dinners to celebrate birthdays and all that. So awesome but uh as you can see my my space is very small so sometimes they feel like i don't want to take up the space yeah (laughs) because they know that i'm not going to charge or not charge everything Uh and but they do order from here so yes they they love it awesome they have they i have their full support nowadays
0: awesome well abel i'm very excited to eat (laughs) and i thank you for your time i wish you nothing but success and uh, yeah, man, you're amazing. Thank you.
1: Very, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Very uh, flattered that you even wanted to speak to us. So oh, of
0: course. You. You're our first Ecuadorian representative on the podcast. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> really excited and to have you. And I want to say one
1: last thing. Yeah. Is that, that all the, um, the success that we've had is due to the kitchen staff. Because without them, I'm serious. They work so hard. And I tell them behind their backs and in front of them, um, it's... Um, um I how this team is my stellar my, they're so stellar. They're amazing. Awesome. I love that. Alright, thank you. You're welcome.
0: That is a wrap on episode number one hundred and twenty-three of the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. Thank you to Abel and the amazing crew over at Nanyo, because I had some amazing food and he was a really cool guy with a lot of interesting things to say. Thank you to you, Voyagers, as always, for tuning in, for listening, for sharing. Really appreciate it. Really, really love doing this. I'm back to working. I know I had my fun. I was away for a year. But I'm back to working, so now I squeeze these in on nights and weekends. But I got a whole lot of really cool stuff coming up that you will be listening to shortly. And then... What's next, Tim? What's after that? Well, starting to think about and plan for another really long trip, <laughs> another year long trip. And, uh, you know, this episode is appropriate for that because I'm thinking it's going to be South America. And I'm really, really excited about that. It's going to be different for me. Um, Got to start learning some Spanish and planning things out. But I'm really excited about the potential for that in the future. So, in the meantime, enjoy the next few, next few, next several dozen or hundred episodes that come out before I head out on that trip. All right, folks, thanks for listening. And as always, please take care of each other. I will catch you next time.